Hello and welcome to the Midweeks. We are going to cover chapter 3 of 2 Kings. This is a story of the kings going to war. And we've met Elisha. We've been introduced to his, uh, his reign as the chief prophet. And with the two stories, one of uh, healing water and one of the curse of the bears. And now we're going to see Elisha interacting with these kings. Remember, he invaded Israel going through the Jordan. And now he's going to be extending the rule of God over the kingdoms of uh, the north and southern kingdoms of Israel in this story. So without further ado, in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Okay, so here we come to the uh, regular repeated evaluation of a king. And all of the northern kings are bad, but in this case it's interesting because he gets some credit for not being as bad as Ahab. He put away the pillar of Baal, uh, but he continued in the sin of Jeroboam. And the sin of Jeroboam was that he made those two golden calves. Remember, um, Jeroboam was the first king after the divided kingdom, and of the northern he was the northern kingdom's king after the kingdom divided, and he made some bulls for people to worship so that they wouldn't go down to Israel to or to Jerusalem to worship God in his temple. And so he's continued in with that false idol worshiping, but he did remove some of his father's false idol worshiping. And so uh, he gets a bit of credit, though ultimately the entire evaluation is negative. Now, Misha, king of Moab, this is verse 4, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So the king, so king Jer- Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Okay, so this is very common. Whenever there is a transfer of power in kingdoms, um, the subject kingdoms around a, a great king often will test the resolve of the new king. And so this may even remind us of what happened with Solomon dying and Rehoboam coming to power and Rehoboam came to power and that's when um, the kingdom divided because uh, Jeroboam led a rebellion. And so we have this similar situation here where Ahab dies and now Moab is leading a rebellion against um, the new king Jehoram. Jehoram, sorry, I'm getting a little confused this morning, but you can see there's a bit of an echo. When Solomon died, the kingdom divided. Now that Ahab has died, Moab wants to kind of throw off the yoke of having to produce all these lambs and rams wool, and so it happens again. Verse 7, And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are my people as your people my horses as your horses then he said by which way shall we march and jehoram answered by the way of the wilderness of edom so this is interesting you know that the north and the south are getting united by a king dying here with jehoshaphat coming to become united with jehoram but this isn't really a good unite it's it uh jehoshaphat shouldn't be saying my people are as your people because uh Jehoram is a false king, or he's the real king, but he's a false worshiper. So 
This isn't a good uniting. This is just a military political uniting. This isn't a uniting in the Lord. And Elisha is going to say something to that effect. Verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So now it's three kings. And when they had made a securitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So... The king of Israel's lost hope. Now, all of a sudden, he wants to talk about the Lord now that bad things are happening. Um, this is was actually his choice, and so I'm not sure why he's blaming God for it, but it's typical for people to blame God when things go bad. Verse 11, And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, though through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king's of Israel's servants answered, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here, who poured hands on the water of Elisha. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So very interesting. The place where they get stuck is near to Elisha. And this is Jehoshaphat's shining moment that he says we need to hear from God and we need to put in the effort to go hear from God by consulting a true prophet. Let's not just blame the Lord. Let's go hear from the Lord. And so these three kings gather together to Elisha. Verse 13, And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. So this is right. This is very similar to um, previous kings where the prophet doesn't want to just get used because God doesn't want to just get used. Um, if you're not really repenting, then go away. Verse, oh, sorry, still in verse 13, But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who's called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So again, saying this, and, and you know what, there's some truth to it. They're going to die unless the Lord intervenes. And he's now saying, ah, God's done this. Verse 13, and Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Elisha is so awesome, intimidated by nothing. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now this is interesting. We don't often get an insight into how the prophets prophesied. But here, Elisha, um, either this is his regular habit or he's led in the moment. But he wants to prophesy by music. And it's interesting because often prophets are poets. You know, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah were poets. Ezekiel wrote poetry, but sometimes prose. But in this case, he wants to prophesy to music. Verse 16, And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but, th but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give Moabite into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city. And you shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. And the next morning, about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, before the water came from the direction of Edom, till the country was filled with water. So this is an interesting prophecy. Um, note the timing is connected with the temple worship, the offering of the sacrifice. So um, again, it contrasts with the false worship of these kings, or at least the false worship of the northern kingdom that they're speaking of the timing as true or true worship of god this is when this happened um also interesting that not only does god care about bringing them water which kind of corresponds to remember elisha's first miracle is a healing of water so that people can live and so now we get a healing of water or healing with water so that people might live miracle and 
If Elijah was mostly known as a prophet of fire, you know, calling down fire from heaven and calling for a drought where, where the, the sun scorches the earth, Elisha is going to have a lot of water miracles. So he's that mixture of both wrath but also grace. And the water theme in Elisha's reign often speaks to God having grace on people. But the thing that's interesting is when they when the prophecy talks about them defeating Moab, it talks about cutting down every good tree. And that is actually something that's kind of forbidden in the law of Moses. I think it's Deuteronomy 20 where God says when you go and lay siege to a city, you shouldn't chop down the trees, the good trees that are good for food. Like you're not supposed to have a scorched earth policy. And so I'm a bit confused if this prophecy is a command that they're supposed to do it or it's just a description of, of what they're going to do here. But either way, they go from just like conquest to scorched earth. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. I think here that there, it's possible that Elisha is just saying when you attack. Um, no, no, it just says you shall. So there's something about like a vengeance going on here. When they go in there, they're going to go scorched earth, even though they're usually commanded not to do that. So it's a bit confusing. Um, and I haven't sort of sorted out the morality of this. Verse 3, 21, I'm sorry, chapter 3, 21. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they arose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. And the kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then Moab to the spoil. Now you can understand why they would think it's blood because God provided all this water without rain or wind and so they couldn't imagine why it went from like a desert place to a watered place and so they just assumed it was blood because of disunity amongst the ranks and that's very common that happened lots in the old testament where armies would unite together from different countries and then turn on each other for one reason or another just think of gideon Verse 24, but when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them, and they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. So the sense I get here is that when Moab went to the spoil, they weren't functioning as an army, as a unit. They would have just ridden in there all mamsy-pamsy, and because of that, the Israelites were able to launch a proper defense. And then, because in one sense, their defense was like a surprise attack, they were able to counterattack successfully because the Moabites allowed themselves to become disorderly and disorganized. Verse 25, And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. And they stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So this is where you have this scorched earth policy where they're like destroying the the food production capabilities of this land. I'm not sure if it's because uh, Moab rebelled and so because they were leading a rebellion, they kind of are getting treated as rebels. I'm not sure. It's somewhat confusing, but I'm going to be even more confused in just a second, and you'll see why. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. So they see the Edomite king as the weak one and tried to escape th through him, but that plan failed. 
Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. This is completely mysterious to me. Uh, seeing that they couldn't break through against the kings, the king of Moab turns to human sacrifice uh, and sacrifices his oldest son. And there's some kind of like great wrath against Israel because of this. And it's so unclear. Did Moab uh, see what had happened and then fight back extra hard? Did the soldiers... Um, attacking Moab see what they did by that act of human sacrifice and were they then like disheartened and disgusted by how much they were attacking Moab did they feel like we've gone too far here was there some kind of spiritual counterattack as the king of Moab offers his son to demonic powers that the demonic powers are actually able to counterattack what's going on here it's very mysterious we don't know all we know is that this really awful event of human sacrifice happens and there's some kind of wrath against Israel and then so they withdraw maybe even the Lord at this point sees that Israel has gone too far with the punishment of this rebellion and its wrath from God but it doesn't even say who the wrath is from so um, it's mysterious it's unclear and sometimes the narrative will give us this sense of lack of clarity because the people themselves didn't know what's going on. It's completely possible that we're meant to feel with the kings that came out against Moab um, that they just did not know what happened. It looked like they were winning and then the sacrifice happened and the next thing they knew they're heading back home. And it's like, what just happened there? We may be being granted the confusion that came in response to this act of human sacrifice so i don't feel bad not understanding it it's confusing and i think it's meant to be confusing because it would have been very easy for the author to clarify what was going on here but what we do know is is that um, even though god had grace on the army by giving them water and permitted them a victory um, he wasn't actually for israel and so israel's victory was not a full victory because God saw the Israelite army as being an evil one, and God agreed with Elisha that he did not like this union that was happening between Judah and Israel. And so in the end, though they're given a victory, their lives are spared, they're given a victory, they're not given a complete victory because um, they're not right with the Lord. I think that's the best way to read it. So there you are, we're working through Kings, um, and we're getting to know Elisha. We see him both as a uh, mercy giver here but also as someone who speaks truly uh, condemnation on not good things when he sees them and I think that's what we like about Elisha he just is so blunt um, and this is kind of God's way sometimes as people remain hard-hearted over time God's communications with them become more and more forceful and direct and uh, sharp-edged and so we're, we're going to keep seeing that more and more as we uh, as we see this story unfolding. So hope you're having a great day. Um, enjoy this heading into Christmas season as I'm writing or re recording this. It's early December and uh, hope you're blessed as you study God's word.